Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. I go, what do you want on top? He's like, a number two. I literally stop and I'm like, bro, a number two is real short. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. 20 minutes later, his mom comes busting in the door. Look at this lady, wasting my day. Wait for a bad, right for, a bad haircut, for a bad haircut. For a bad haircut that I gave her son that he asked for. A Massachusetts mom called 911 after her 17-year-old son came home from the barber with a haircut she didn't like. He's 17. I assumed he was going to be like five. So Michael did I. told us about this tape. I thought when I was reading this, it was going to say seven. No, 17. Is it almost a grown-up. What is mom getting involved in a grown-up's haircut about? I have an emergency, please. The mom relayed her story to the 911 operator. <laughs> My son just had a haircut, and he screwed up his hair. Wow. Is that a helicopter parent or a snowplow parent or a hydraulic lift parent or just a nut? The dispute quickly turned ugly. The operator tells the mom that the barber called the mother the C-word. No, no, that would, sir. That did not help. (laughs) Oh, my God. The teen, a senior at high school. A senior? I, I, I can't imagine how mortified I'd be. My mom's chewing out a barber. Look what you did to his head. <laughs> well, it sounds like the kid asked for a really short haircut. He wanted the number two. I told him that's real short, right? You want the number two? I'll give you the number two. Come and, on. And then wackadoo mom, who I'm believing based on my evidence is a C word. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, so it would seem. Uh, didn't like her son's choice of haircut and decided to get mad about it. Anyway, all right. All right. Wow. I'd be all right if the short hair came back in style for the kids. It did, I wonder if it's about time. Has it gone through the cycle yet? My youngest has got super long rock and roll hair. He's got great hair. He got his he got his mom's hair, but he's got the crazy long hair. Can um, he sing? Teach him to sing rock and roll. Um. Oh darn it. Oh. Uh, let, let me answer this real quickly. All right. Yep. I know. Yep, I got. Yep. And I'll be back in like one minute. I'll do it on the air. Oh, this. Hey, bud. Whoops. I don't know how to answer phone. <laughs> hey, bud. Hey, buddy, can I call you back in? Can I call you back in like twenty minutes, Buster? Would that be okay? Okay, I'll call you back in like twenty minutes. Okay. All right. I love you. Bye. Okay. We got a we got an emergency situation going on here. Did he get a bad haircut? Yes. Way too long. Um. So now, I brought the number you- two is really short. You want the number two? <laughs> <laughs> so I called her a c-word. <laughs> Um, we brought you this story yesterday. This uh, professor was going to give a lecture at MIT. It's this very prestigious lecture, and MIT canceled it because he was on the wrong side of wokeness. Well, here's the details, because he has decided to write a piece for Substack by Dorian Abbott, the professor. And I'm just going to read it to you. It's pretty long, but this is interesting. This is the world we now live in, and it fits in with a whole bunch of stuff we've given you before. MIT abandons its, abandons its mission and me. Let's make sure my cancellation is the last. That begins by standing up and saying no to the mob. I am a professor who just had a prestigious public service lecture at MIT canceled because of an outrage mob on Twitter. My crime? Arguing for academic evaluations based on academic merit. This is the story of how a cancellation is carried out, why it should worry all of us, and why we don't, and why we, and what we can do to stop this dangerous trend. I have been a professor at the Department of Geophysical Sciences at the University of Chicago for the past 10 years. 
I work on topics ranging from climate change to the possibility of life on other planets using mathematics, physics, and computer simulation. I've never considered myself a political person. For example, a few days before an election, I usually go to isidewith.com and answer the policy questions, then assign my vote using a weighted draw based on my overlap with other candidates. It's an efficient algorithm that works perfect, perfectly for a nerd like me. You are really not into politics if you just go to that website and check the boxes and then vote that way, huh. which is important to the point here. But I started to get alarmed about five years ago as I noticed an increasing number of issues and viewpoints became impossible to discuss on campus. I mostly just wanted to do my science and not have anyone yell at me, and I thought that if I kept my mouth shut, the problem would eventually go away. I knew that speaking out would likely bring serious reputational and professional consequences, and for a number of years, I just didn't think it was worth it. But the street violence of the summer of 2020, some of which I witnessed personally in Chicago, and the justifications and dishonesty that accompanied it, convinced me that I could no longer remain silent in good conscience. In the fall of 2020, I started advocating openly for academic freedom and merit-based evaluations. I recorded some short YouTube videos in which I argued for the importance of treating each person as an individual worthy of dignity and respect. Well, that can't be good. Imagine that, heretic. In an academic context, that means giving everyone a fair and equal opportunity when they apply for a position, as well as allowing them to express their opinions openly, even if you disagree with them. As a result, I was immediately targeted for cancellation, primarily by a group of graduate students in my department. Whistleblowers later revealed that the attack was partially planned and coordinated on the Ford Foundation Fellowship Program listserv by a graduate student to my department. That group of graduate students organized a letter of denunciation. It claimed that I threatened the safety and belonging of all underrepresented groups within the department. And I was presented to my department chair, and it was presented to my department chair. The letter amended that my teaching and research be restricted in a way that would cripple my ability to function as a scientist. A strong statement in support of faculty free expression by University of Chicago president put an end to that. But that is where things stood until the summer of 2021. On August 12th, a colleague and I wrote an op-ed in Newsweek in which we argued that diversity, equity, and inclusion as it currently is implemented on campus, violates the ethical and legal principle of equal treatment and treats persons as merely means to an end, giving primacy to a statistic over the individuality of a human being. We proposed instead an alternative framework called merit, fairness, and equality. That's interesting. So he wants to fight diversity, equity, inclusion with merit, fairness, and equality. I'll have to remember that. Merit is a white supremacist principle. I've read that. Uh, MFE, they call it, whereby university applicants are treated as individuals and elevated through a rigorous and unbiased process based on their merit and qualifications alone. We noted that this would mean an end to legacy and athletic admission advantages, which significantly favor white applicants. By the way, you know, even if you're going to argue that um, this stuff shouldn't happen at all universities, he's at the freaking University of Chicago. Which, which as I've said before, we should have some places where it's just about how freaking smart you are. Right. We got to have some places for the best of the best. Everything out your upbringing, your 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 advantages, your disadvantages out the window. We just we got to have some place to send the best of the best if we want to, you know, take advantage of the talent of this country. Anyway, back to his letter. 
Shortly thereafter, my detractors developing a new strategy to try to isolate me and intimidate everyone else into silence. They argued on Twitter that I should not be invited to give science seminars at other universities and coordinated replacement speakers. This is an effective, increasingly common way to ratchet up the cost of dissenting because disseminating new work to colleagues is an important part of the scientific endeavor, I'm sure. Sure enough, this strategy was employed when I was chosen to give the Carlson Lecture at MIT, a major honor in my field. It is an annual public talk to a large audience, and my topic was climate and the potential for life on other planets. On September 22nd, a new Twitter mob, composed of a group of MIT students, postdocs, and recent alumni, demanded that I be uninvited. It worked, and quickly. On September 30th, the department chair at MIT called me to tell me that they would be canceling the Carlson Lecture this year in order to avoid controversy. Canceled! Wow, you coward. God, no kidding. You people are such cowards. The fact that such stories have become an everyday feature of American life should do nothing to diminish how shocking they are and how damaging they are to a free society. The fact that MIT, one of the greatest universities in the world, caved in so quickly will only encourage others to deploy the same tactic. Oh, that is beyond clear. Yeah, and it goes on from there. It's very long, but that's the point. And, you know, that final point is so powerful. If MIT, which is up there with, like, you know, Oxford and the Sorbonne as, you know, places of of learning in the world, if MIT is going to cancel you. Well, and it's one of the high temples of science and, you know, any university your local community college should be able to make this argument. But if anybody can, MIT ought to be able to say, look, we're not worried about uh, politics. This is about science. We're purely about science. This guy's a great scientist. The rest of it's out the window. We don't care. Well, he should be able to give his lecture about the whole merit-based thing at a major university. Sure. You would hope. And then you discuss it, argue it, debate it. Have him give the lecture and then have a pro and con debate among your favorite students afterwards. Or something like that. But as you said, he wasn't even talking about that stuff. He was talking about the climate and other planets. Yeah, yeah. MIT canceled him. Correct. That's yeah. unbelievable. Number one, silencing. Uh, a point of view you disagree with is patently, grotesquely evil. And, and number two, falling for the terrorist tactics of saying that you know, a, a speech is violence, and therefore it's not a, a question of free speech at all. It's just it's dumb. You're dumb if you fall for that. Um, I, I can't believe how far this has gone. We had the conversation with Peter Bogosian not long ago about his getting run out of uh, Portland State University, where the university president said it was a, a uh, an achievement to be on the list of universities with the poorest free speech standards. It was a positive. Yeah, it's scary. The universe is a systems. tsunami of wokeness. It's a tsunami yeah. of wokeness. A tsunami of wokeness. Um, the university system is sick. I mean, like badly sick. Gather the family around it. He says toward the end, I view this episode as an example as well as a striking illustration of the threat woke ideology poses to our culture, our institutions, and to our freedoms. There's no doubt about that. And it's it's got the scary thing of, uh, it's like Tim Sandifer is always talking about there's no way to measure the businesses that don't start. You know, if, if regulations are so thick or taxes are too high or whatever, you can't measure all the things that didn't happen because of that. Um, that's where we are. There's, the, the, if enough people get scared off, well, I better not 
I better not, you know, speak out because I'll uh, I won't be able to get my book printed or I won't be able to get anything published or I won't be able to speak at these emergencies. And there's there'll be no way to measure that. There's no way to measure the pushback that won't happen because people are scared for their careers. Yeah. Yeah. And you can't blame people for being scared for recursion. I'm I'm amazed at the number of people that are willing, you know, to give up everything they've built financially to try to make this point and thank God they are, but I'm not sure I would. Well, and the other point though, and Bogosian made this clear was he couldn't live with it anymore. It was so obnoxious, so constant. Yeah. I mean, actual physical violence and people breaking up his classes and all in constant humiliation. You know, it might not be courage as much as desperation. Um, Saturday Night Live on Saturday night did a little tribute to Norm MacDonald that went on play for you. It's kind of funny. Also, our text line is 415-295-KFTC. Armstrong and Getty. 0202. It is a bittersweet night for us tonight. Yeah, on September 14th, our friend Norm McDonald passed away. Norm is the reason that I ever wanted to do Weekend Update, and so tonight we thought we'd turn the last few jokes of Update over to Norm. Thanks, I'm Norm McDonald, and this is the fake news. At the White House this week, President Clinton officially came out against same-sex marriages. What's more, the president said he is not too crazy about opposite-sex marriages either. A French man who calls himself the Snake Man was arrested this week after climbing up the side of a Manhattan high-rise. Yep, he climbed right up the side of a high-rise. Just like a snake. (laughs) In a brilliant move during closing arguments, Simpson attorney Johnny Cochran put on the knit cap prosecutors say O.J. wore the night he committed the murders. Although O.J. may have heard his case when he suddenly blurted out, Hey, hey, easy with that. That's my lucky stabbing hat. (laughs) And that's the way it is, folks. Good night and good luck. Um, Coming up, we're going to talk to Mike Lyons, military strategist, about whatever the heck China is doing, flying fighter jets and bombers and all this sort of stuff so close to Taiwan. What is going on there? It ain't good. No, it ain't. So USA Today asked an interesting question, and the answers are interesting. What was the cost of the restrictions around COVID? Rules and limits on public activity because of the pandemic. And they ask about hurting business and the economy or reducing hospitalizations and deaths. This is interesting because the USA Today has swung so far left and has been so in the pocket of big Fauci, but go on. And this is Pew Research Center stuff. Ah. Um... So for the, has it hurt businesses and the economy, all the shutdowns? 69% of Americans say it's hurt businesses and economy a lot. A lot. Clearly. Uh, Right. And uh, then you got 26% that say some, So, but a lot. For reduced hospitalizations, deaths, only a third of Americans say it reduced hospitalizations and deaths a lot. So half as much, half as many people say it helped with the deaths and hospitalizations as, say, hurt businesses and jobs. 
once again a reality that runs so counter to mainstream media. Who would have you believe that 98% of people are absolutely down with every single restriction, including wearing your mask while you're alone outdoors? And to take it further, so you got 26% that said not much at all on the reduced hospitalizations death. So if you you, um, include not at all with some, you're up over half. So all the restrictions and all the things we've done, you get some or not at all reduced hospitalizations and deaths out of Americans, out of Americans, huh. as opposed to 70% saying, oh, yeah, it hurt businesses and economy. Wow. So ooh, what's the bottom line here? People are willing to accept misplaced uh, authority and policies just because they're, they don't feel like resisting? I think my takeaway is that the American people are not nearly as convinced as cable news hosts that all this was necessary. Yeah, yeah. Oh, which reminds me, before the end of the hour, if you haven't heard it, Dr. Fauci, who has to go yesterday, please. Dr. Fauci saying, ah, it's too early to know whether we can gather with our families for Christmas. And then denying he said that. We'll, we'll hit that before the end of the hour. You know... Doing that poll reminded me of our favorite Yelp review in which somebody said, this is what the Armstrong and Getty show is. They read a story, they misinterpret it, then they complain that the world is going to hell. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty accurate. Yeah, Yeah, where's the lie? Fairly. (laughs) (laughs) Why is China flying fighter planes and bombers so close to Taiwan? We thought we'd ask the smartest guy we know about this sort of stuff, Mike Lines. If you miss an hour of the Armstrong and Getty show, you can get it on the podcast at armstrongandgetty.com. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Coming up, if you haven't heard Dr. Fauci saying we can't have Christmas, then reversing field again. The guy needs so to quit that jar get heaved out. We'll play that for you before too long. But uh, this segment, uh, China flying dozens and dozens, more than 100 of combat aircraft into Taiwan's uh, air defense zone, an incredibly belligerent act. The question is, what is China up to? We have a number of questions, and Mike Lyons, military analyst, joins us. Mike served with various military organizations, both the United States and Europe, throughout his career. Mike, welcome. How are you? Hey, guys. So great to be back with you. Uh, thank you. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. So I just have a very basic question. What's an air defense space? I assume that's different than their national airspace. Right. It's 12 miles outside the border of uh, where, where the land hits. And so each country has a um, an area through international law that says they own space 12 miles outside of where the land starts. And so uh, when you get outside, you know, inside of that, you're allowed to defend your land space. Um, and so missile systems have got to at least go to that place. And so now once the Chinese violate that, they're in theory violating the sovereignty of that country, and in this case, Taiwan. So it's very much like putting your finger an inch from somebody's nose. You haven't touched them, but the incursion is absolutely intentional. Right, and this is different than the, the kind of the classic Cold War ones where Russia would do this to the United States. They would, you know, kind of come out just to the the edge of our uh, of our uh, that space there, and we would see it was designed to see how fast we would alert and and de- deploy aircraft to respond. So we looked at that as just them testing us to see how we would respond here. This is different because you know when you send 150 planes into this area, you're not you can't respond. You know, there's there's you can only 
do so much. This is about this is a threat. There's no question about that. This is clearly a, a threat to to Taiwan and. The Chinese states, in response to our naval exercises that are taking place in Okinawa, and that's a couple of you know island zones up to the north. But again, uh, what's happening here is something we just really haven't seen the Chinese do in a long time. Okay, so I just want to make sure I understand this. So it sounds, it seems to me, or sounds to me like, so they got it. They had enough uh, badass aircraft flying close enough to Taiwan that if they'd have wanted to do something, they could have done it, and it would have been too late for any us or anybody to stop it. Oh, no question. I mean, we don't have that kind of capability on the island itself. I mean, Taiwan has some basic air defense platforms, uh, surface-to-air missile systems, but nothing that could take out what they put over there. I mean, if the those the, the H-6 bombers, for example, they're nuclear-capable, you know, they open their, their doors, drop bombs on Taiwan, it's uh, it's over. I mean, there's just, you know, and, and the Chinese are going to do things like use a nuclear attack nuke first. You know, they're going to use their hypersonic missile systems or cruise missile systems. Um, what, we've, what we're learning from the Chinese is that they've learned from us from Desert Storm that in order to win these wars, you have to, you know, punch hard first the first time, make it so bloody that the the enemy doesn't want to respond here. I, I I'm just so surprised it's so quick, it's happening so fast. Um, in that, you know, the Chinese have traditionally played the long game. We we expect them, for example, they want to have this, let's say, blue water world class navy by 2040. You know, that's still 20 years from now. They're working towards that. It takes basically a generation to do that. They have the technology, they have the equipment. Um, to me, it looks like they're speeding up that timeline, and this is one good example of it. So what are they after by doing something this egregious? What's next? Well, it's all about projecting power in the South China Sea and how they anticipate this would go, um, how they want to be the penultimate power there in that part of the world. Um, they're you know, claiming the responsibility of you know, the United States, Australia, Japan, South Korea, if, if you know, that's kind of the ally system right now that's going to have to push back against the Chinese. Talking to another analyst over the weekend, though, we were saying, okay, so let's work in this out. What, what does war with China look like? I know you, you guys and I have talked about that and where it would take place, and we're, we're coming to realize that it likely takes place very similar to what we saw in the Second World War in this island hopping campaign as the Chinese look to gain and hold certain of these islands that are close to Taiwan. Um, would eventually they would try to, unfortunately, use some kind of amphibious operation to take over the island itself. Now, they'd likely destroy it. There'd be a lot of death and destruction. Um, and I think the Chinese are threatening the, our allies and ourselves, saying, don't even think of doing anything because the price you're going to pay will be an aircraft carrier. We're going to sink an aircraft carrier. We're going to sink two aircraft carriers. In fact, if you've got two there in the region right now, we've got a couple there. The U.S., uh, I think the Vincent's there and the Ronald Reagan's there right now. Couple destroyers protecting it as well. Um, they're going to go right after that, and they're not going to hesitate. It's, it's, I don't know how likely it is, but if they wanted to, um, they could change the, the 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 balance of power on the planet like in a day, right? I mean, they attack Taiwan yeah. if we don't react, and Japan says, "Well, the United States didn't come to their defense, so I guess we're kind of out of luck." And then just a whole bunch of people decide, "Okay, the United States is not the policeman of the world, or going to fix right. everything everywhere." So we need to figure out how to deal with China, and things would change like really, really fast, wouldn't they? Right. Just look at so look at what Afghanistan taught our allies that when we don't put America first, when we decide, "Ah, hey, you know what, we're not going to really defend you guys. We're out of here." Look what happens. And, and versus if you're an ally of the Chinese, you know, they, they like the fact that they put China first because that means they know they're always going to back them up. Well, that's that's what's happening right now. Like That's what this test is to them because they absolutely can. And, again, this is a country that would use 
a low-level nuclear-capable weapon in, in the beginning of the fight, it would escalate immediately right to that. Now, does it get to you know intercontinental ballistic missiles? I'm not sure. We would do that. We would trade city for city or anything like that. But but they're going to do whatever they can to project this level of power, given what's you know given what their plan is, their belt and roads uh, suspenders, and, and that that, uh, that initiative that's taking place throughout throughout Asia. You know they want to be the world dominant power. This is their century, and this is how they think they have to do it. And um, we're 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 sitting there saying, okay, you know, are they ten feet tall? What what do they look like? You know. They're, they're not. They might be ten feet tall, but they're six feet and they're growing. So we've got to have to deal with this. Um, I think sooner than later. Mike Lyons, military analyst on the line. Uh, Mike, you mentioned our aircraft carriers as a uh, friend and relative of various naval and, and marine personnel, and and somebody who's been proud of our amazing aircraft carriers since WW two. Yeah. Can we defend them anymore? Well, that's a great question, and given their hypersonic missile capability, uh, over twenty five hundred. Um, surface-to-land missiles that they have that they built on the, in the South China Sea. I, I don't know. It's a, you know they're going to change how warfare goes. Um, I, I just was, I'm on a conference right now at the Modern War Institute and just heard a very telling comment made by a guy that said, you know, we've, got, we've been a 100% wrong in predicting the next fight. Well, you know, the next fight we know is going to involve cyber. We, ne- we know the next fight is going to involve technology. But, but I, I think the next fight involves this swarm technology where drones and the like are just going to be, you know, robots are being thrown at our, our systems that are manned by people. And, you know, you can't defend against 2,000 things coming at you, no matter what, how great the aircraft carrier is and how, how many destroyers you have around it to protect it. So I think that's what the Chinese are going to do, and, and we've got to figure out a way to, to shut that down, maybe EMP, other other different weapon systems that, that, quite frankly, we're behind in right now that the Chinese have the lead in. Hypersonic missiles and drone clouds? Good Lord, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. Oh, yeah. yeah, no, I know. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't, maybe I, I guess this is what you know, kind of we do as the analyst side. We're always looking at what the capabilities are, and we've right. got to make sure that we have the capability to defend, and we also recognize when there's a weakness to kind of to kind of run it through. Um, the, the Chinese could make a tremendous mistake if they don't get it right the first time. Here's what the Chinese don't have: whether we like it or not. The U.S. has been, you know, bloodied. We have got experienced military. You know, we've been to war the past 20 years, so we kind of know how to do this. The Chinese haven't shot at anybody since 1979. So the question is, if they do get in some kind of land battle or some big conflict, um, are they going to have the guts to pull the trigger? And I think that's uh, that remains to be seen. So how much does that matter that we have, you know, recent actual military experience and they don't? Me personally, I think it matters a lot. Um, again, because when you uh, it's a function of how well they're going to do once the shooting starts. Like, like my, what I found in combat was once our soldiers saw the confidence that they had in their equipment and the fact that it was no match, it created a sense of invincibility around our units. And, and I'm sure the pilots feel the same way, and I know the sailors feel the same way. That doesn't matter. We're going to be fine in this situation. The Chinese have yet to prove that out, whether or not their their investment is going to take do that for them from a cultural perspective and they recognize the culture is an important part of this because you know again the pla the whole the whole army thing is still kind of new for them they're they've invested money in their officers the 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 leader of china for example doesn't even trust a lot of his general officers because a lot of that has been bought and paid so they have the traditional problems of those those armies that kind of get you know brought up from the from the the, the root cause but now they've got to go actually fight the question is whether they'll actually fight well, you know what what do you fight for i know i know when we're in our units you know we fight for each other but the question is whether those Chinese PLA and Army units will do the same for each other. 
Well, and I've been told by somebody uh, who studies this thing and whose opinion I trust that just culturally and historically, we have a tradition of, um, you know, the intent of your commander. They tell you what we're trying to accomplish. Then if um, if it turns out we need to improvise and do something different or in a different way, our people are empowered to do that, as opposed to a lot of Asian cultures, including Japan, which has struggled with this. It's very, very much top down and you dare not dishonor uh, dishonor your commander. Yeah, I'm not sure in the Chinese military as they've tried to fight against that. But again, we won't know until the bullets start flying, I guess, on some level. We definitely saw that in, in the Japanese military, especially during World War II and, and, and how they felt. Um, I think that the, they recognize culture as an issue. If you look at their advertisements, if you look at what they're trying to do, they're, they're trying to power down um, and focus on NCOs, the non-commissioned officers that actually run the battles there. Uh, but but it takes it takes generation, and they're going to have to get you know into something. So I wouldn't be surprised if you saw the Chinese deploy certain units into certain places in the world to try to get some combat experience as proxy forces to to their units, so they can kind of come back and tell the story and recognize what their shortcomings are going to be and what they're going to have to overcome if they get into if we get into this great land power mass battle that could take place uh, on those islands within the South China Sea. Wow, so many interesting points. Mike Lyons, military analyst. Mike, we truly appreciate it. Guys, thanks for having me. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Well, this is exciting. It was announced that next week, 90-year-old legendary actor William Shatner, also known as Captain Kirk, will travel to space aboard Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin rocket. You can tell Elon Musk is jealous of Bezos' idea because he just yelled, Get me Betty White on line two. Rose, you're going to space. Speaking mm. of Elon Musk, did you see Tesla just lost a um they got to pay 137 million dollars to a uh, a black employee of Tesla, former black employee who says he was uh, racially abused at the California factory. 137 million dollars. He says he was repeatedly called the N-word. He complained to supervisors and nobody did anything about it. Wow. Now, I, that just seems impossible to, to me to believe that, that that's true. That sounds like one of those jury awards that gets overturned in a pretty big hurry. $137 million? That's a lot of money. I'd say. Hey, what happens if Jeff Bezos kills Captain Kirk? I mean, many tried and failed. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Bezos. Of course, Bezos, every bit as powerful and evil as Khan, for instance. So we're tired of Dr. Fauci. Wish we we just wish he'd go away and they'd start talking to a different ancient scientist about this stuff because he just he comes with so much baggage. But he was asked on one of the talk shows over the weekend whether or not we're going to be able to uh, spend Christmas together this year. I guess I should have told you which clip. And he answered with words uh, about forty-two. It's just too soon to tell. We've just got to concentrating on continuing to get those numbers down. So he's asked, are we going to be able to spend Christmas together this year? And he said it's too... Pointing out, by the way, somebody asked that friggin' question. Like, you need 
Dr. Fauci's permission to get together for what sort of weak act are you to even ask? Yeah, but, I, I wouldn't ask. I hadn't even thought about it. I'm going to do whatever I want to do for Christmas, regardless of what Dr. Fauci thinks or the CDC or whatever. Yeah. Asking the question is a sin on its own. But he said it's too soon to tell. Well, people kind of went a little crazy with that. Like, you're saying we shouldn't get together for Christmas? Really? I mean, that's crazy. And he says that's not what he said at all. 41. You know, I also said something over the weekend that was taken completely out of context. I was asked, what could we predict for this winter for like December and Christmas? I was going to ask you. That was misinterpreted as my saying, we can't spend Christmas with our families, which was absolutely not the case. I will be spending Christmas with my family. I encourage people, particularly the vaccinated people who are protected, to have a good, normal Christmas with your family. So he's either liar, or a liar, crazy, or senile. You know, any of which is enough to disqualify him from the job, not to mention his association with Peter Daszak and the Wuhan Institute. God, how does he still have his gig? Well, I know the answer, actually. Yeah. It's because he's a saint. Of the anti-COVID religion. Well, there's a Trump line that goes through everything. Sure. And he's on that side of the Trump line. So you can't get rid of him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm scanning. We played some tapes from Matt Taibbi, some recordings of Matt Taibbi earlier. He's talking about the religions that have cropped up in America. Uh, kind of pro-Trump, anti-Trump, or paranoid about... Uh, covid or dismissive of covid and it's very much like religions and 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 he was talking about how the, the each has its patron saints and dr fauci is absolutely a weird you know saint if not a christ figure of the masked alone in their cars democrat crowd he's become a sacred figure god get rid of him yeah you're right. I, I that had escaped me. the The sickening part of that whole thing is somebody even asking, "Can we get together with family this Christmas? What kind of world do you live in where you got to ask a government bureaucrat whether or not you can get together for Christmas?" And and at this point, you don't have enough information about the COVID. You don't have enough, uh, you know, experience. You, you, you are you vaccinated or not? What, wh- why do I have to ask you? How can you not know whether you're going to get together with your family or not at this point? Good lord, this thing's been going on going on two years. Oy vey, man, people are sheep. So uh, Zuckerberg, not Zuckerberg, but the whistleblower for Facebook being questioned all day by senators. We'll have any highlights or news out of that tomorrow. Fire thoughts! <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. This is art. With your hosts, Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. That is art. And if you would like to submit a little thing, whatever it is, for the final thoughts introduction, email it to us, mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com. Here's your host for final thoughts, Joe Getty. Mm. Let's get a final thought from everybody on the crew, beginning with our technical director, pressing the buttons in the control room, Michelangelo. Michael? First, I'm I'm thrilled that Dr. Fauci cleared up Christmas. I'll order my Christmas lights now. Now that I know I can celebrate it, but I want to know about Thanksgiving. You know, that comes before Christmas. Absolutely. So, Dr. Fauci, what should I do? Oh, it's not too early to tell. I, you know, the important thing is we got to keep an eye on the numbers. Blah, blah, blah. Alex, young Alex we is our... We want to 
yes. uh, which is the American impulse. I want to solve this problem. What, what do, Am I hearing voices on my head? Young Alex is our producer behind the scenes. Alex, final the, thought? Uh, Congress. I'm not sure what he's doing. That's going well. Okay, <laughs> never mind. Moving along. Jack, you're the dang co-host. Final thought for us. So I'm kind of getting back into baseball again and uh, Yankees-Red Sox tonight in a playoff game, so that's kind of exciting. Um, Looking forward to uh, all the playoff baseball kicking off. Yeah, my final thought goes back to the uh, infamous MIT canceling the professor's speech story. I'm reading the piece he and his co-worker wrote about, uh, you know, diversity, the DEI thing on campus. It's really good. It's really smart. It's really convincing. It's perfectly reasonable. The idea that he ought to get banned from speaking about science because of that, that editorial Man, that's scary. You, me, we all need to be activists in this stuff or it's going to wash over us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's... And the top institutions in the world are buying into this crap. Anyway, Armstrong and Getty wrapping up another grueling four-hour workday. Go to armstrongandgetty.com. So many people thank so little time. You can email us, like I said, mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com. If there's something we ought to be talking about, send it along. You can get some cool A&G swag, an I'm Vaxxed, no mask t-shirt, perhaps. The hot links are there. And if you miss any chunk of the show, you can get it via podcast. Armstrong and Getty On Demand at the website or wherever podcasts are distributed. So we'll see you tomorrow with all the latest news of the day. God bless America. Armstrong and Getty. Power! Oh, so, uh... Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. I'm gonna call my lawyer. Gonna. But if we don't, if we don't... Right in the calf! Are you sure of that, dude? Take your turtleneck and get! Now, I know you guys are having fun playing your game, but damn it. What the hell are we doing here? You know what, Mom? You should become a swinger. (laughs) Why? You know, have sex with all sorts of different guys. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Don't say it out loud. That's my point. On that high note, thank you all very much. Armstrong and Getty.